Um, never enough time to fit everything in, and Ecclesiastes is probably a good book to look at with that uh, situation uh, going on. Lovely to be here um, with you this morning. It's great uh, to come up and be back at Fullwood. Let me just pray again as we start uh, this next part uh, of our morning together. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've uh, already shown us. Thank you um, for the work your word does in us, Lord, uh, as we've talked about things from your word, considered sin. We see ourselves, Lord, and we shudder in light of your holiness because we know ourselves to be sinners. Uh, As you shine your light on us, we we see what we are uh, in light of who you are. But thank you that your light also shines on the cross and shows us the Saviour. And we are grateful for that. And we want to repent and trust you. Please keep us doing that this morning as we read on now in Ecclesiastes. Amen. Um, Let let me ask you um, uh, a brief question. Um, Some of us, most of us maybe, are getting a bit older. What advice would you want to give uh, to somebody young? Um, Put your mobile on uh, silent. Uh, That might be one bit of advice. But what, what... what bit of advice would you want to give to people who are young, starting out in life, starting out in career? Just have that in the back of your head um, as you think about it. Steve Jobs, some of you might know him, was one of the co-founders of Apple. He, um, he died last year. I, I came across this uh, video of him addressing, I think it's a graduation day speech uh, for Stanford University students. So this is towards the end of it. We'll just listen to, to what he says as he gives... Advice on his observations of life and what he thinks uh, should be your attitude in approaching life. And since then, for the past 32 years, I looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. About a year ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. I had a scan at 7.30 in the morning, and it clearly showed a tumor on my pancreas. I didn't even know what a pancreas was. The doctors told me this was almost certainly a type of cancer that is incurable, and that I should expect to live no longer than three to six months. My doctor advised me to go home and get my affairs in order which is doctor's code for prepare to die. It means to try and tell your kids everything. You thought you had the next 10 years to tell them in just a few months. It means to make sure everything is buttoned up so that it will be as easy as possible for your family. It means to say your goodbyes. I lived with that diagnosis all day. Later that evening, I had a biopsy where they stuck an endoscope down my throat through my stomach into my intestines, 
put a needle into my pancreas and got a few cells from the tumor. I was sedated, but my wife, who was there, told me that when they viewed the cells under a microscope, the doctors started crying because it turned out to be a very rare form of pancreatic cancer that is curable with surgery. I had the surgery, and thankfully, I'm fine now. This was the closest I've been to facing death, and I hope it's the closest I get for a few more decades. Having lived through it, I can now say this to you with a bit more certainty than when death was a useful but purely intellectual concept. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet, death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. When I was young, there was an amazing publication called the Whole Earth Catalog, which is one of the Bibles of my generation. It was created by a fellow named Stuart Brand, not far from here in Menlo Park, and he brought it to life with his poetic touch. This was in the late 60s, before personal computers and desktop publishing, so it was all made with typewriters, scissors, and Polaroid cameras. It was sort of like Google in paperback form 35 years before Google came along. It was idealistic, overflowing with neat tools, and great notions. Stewart and his team put out several issues of the whole earth catalog, and then, when it had run its course, they put out a final issue. It was the mid-1970s, and I was your age. On the back cover of their final issue was a photograph of an early morning country road, the kind you might find yourself hitchhiking on if you were so adventurous. Beneath it were the words, stay hungry, stay foolish. It was their farewell message as they signed off. Stay hungry, stay foolish. And I've always wished that for myself. And now, as you graduate to the inner new, I wish that for you. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Thank you all very much. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Thousands of young people about to embark on life and careers. That's, that's his advice. Uh, death uh, is a reality that should shape your thinking. And it's a good thing. So says Steve Jobs. wonder what you make of that. Uh, he was a man with ambitions. Uh, recruiting uh, John Scully from Pepsi with the, with the pitch. Do you want to spend your life making sugared water? Or do you want to come to Apple and change the world? 
or his other famous phrase, we're here to put a dent in the universe. That's big ambitions uh, for your life, for your view of life. We're going to spend the next bit of time uh, diving into Ecclesiastes. Keep Steve Jobs' advice on life um, maybe in the back of your mind again as you think about what Ecclesiastes will say to us. Uh, Someone has said this about the book. It's perhaps the most enigmatic book in the Old Testament. It teases us with questions. It yields its answers only grudgingly. It doesn't allow easy answers. Uh, And in other words, it is thoroughly irritating. I don't know if you found that as you've read it. Uh, And yet, as you do read it, I think you find yourself saying again and again, yeah, that's been my experience too. Why is life uh, like that? Um, In terms of wisdom to live by, as we're thinking about wisdom, the book seems to open doors for us and say, have a look at this, and then shuts them firmly in our face again. Uh, What I hope we'll get a chance to do with the time we've got is is get an idea of how to listen to this specific book. We might have had some of that already. Have have a go at seeing maybe some structure to it that will help us understand some of the theology of the author uh, and follow its trajectory off into the, the New Testament, into the Gospel uh, of, of Jesus. Uh, but just um, in your tables, you should have a little handout as well. I think you found that as well. I know some of you have read it already. I know some of, you, uh, some of your children have read it and commented on it as well. Just, just at the tables with people around you, what are your first impressions of the book? Uh, what do you think of it? Just chat for a minute with people um, beside you. How do you feel about the book? Um, any thoughts? Any thoughts on Ecclesiastes? How do you feel about it as a book? First impressions? Yeah, Roger. Quite a hard sell. If you if you lead uh, any kind of home group, you, you know there's there's always someone in your group who the very bit you hope they'll skip over and not ask you about um, is the bit they home in on. Ecclesiastes is full of those bits, isn't it? <laughs> Please, no one ask about verses one to seventeen because that yeah yeah it, it can feel like that. Is that is that a general kind of feeling that seems to be. I, I've, I've heard people, yeah? There's no point in giving an answer because you've heard it before. Yeah. So quite interesting. One thing I read this morning, uh, Jim Packer quoting someone else saying, Ecclesiastes is the book that teaches you how to enjoy life. <laughs> I would immediately write that off if it wasn't for the fact that Jim Packer was saying it. And I think, he's not stupid, is he? I, I want to let, Ecclesiastes is a book that will teach you how to enjoy life. You might come back at the end and say, that's a hard sell, and I'm not persuaded. Um, but but let's, let's carry on with it. I, and I think the book does address, thinking about Steve Jobs, it, it will address people who think they can put a dent in the universe. And it will address, who feel, it will address people who feel the universe has dented them. I think it will speak to us. Um, We've done some of this, so let me just go through it quickly. I think Rich mentioned this earlier. Listening to Ecclesiastes, there's two voices uh, that you want to listen to. Um, so in chapter 1, verse 12, you'll come across the preacher, uh, if you're, I think, in the ESV, the teacher in the NIV, speaking in the first person. He'll say, I saw this, I saw that. 
Um, I think the Hebrew word is kohelet. Uh, so, some say, is, is that a title? It, it can mean, preacher, teacher, the leader of the assembly, the assembler. Um, some say, is it, is it a title or is it a name? Is it being used as a name? So that's who's kind of speaking, preacher, teacher, kohelet. I will refer to him as kohelet as we go through it. I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly. And then in chapter 1, verse 1, in 12, 9 to 12 at the end, the book begins and ends with a person who introduces Kohelet to us. He, he speaks directly once more in chapter 7. Some refer to this guy as the frame narrator. He's the author of the book, the compiler of uh, this selection of Kohelet's teaching. And he, in a sense, is the one interpreting Kohelet for us with what he says at the end. Uh, with this, this guy, who is Kohelet? There, there's a bit of discussion about who he is. The main question seems to be, is he Solomon or not? Uh, for those of you who have read it, reasons for thinking he might be Solomon? He's, he's very wise, uh, with qualifications from what Ben said earlier about Solomon's wisdom. But yeah, he seems to be, he talks about wisdom. Did someone say something else? He's a son of David. King in Jerusalem. Uh, some of the descriptions about pleasure and wealth and all those things, they, they seem to suggest that. Also, in, if you were to read, I, I can't read Hebrew, let me just say that at the start. You've got people here who can, who can help you with it. Back in 1 Kings 8, Solomon assembles the people in the temple, and it seems to be the same root of this word, Kohelet. So is that a kind of coded way of saying we're talking about Solomon again here? Uh, reasons for thinking it's not Solomon. Well, in chapter 1, verse 16, there's a reference to all the rulers in Jerusalem before him. And if it's Solomon, well, David was the only ruler in Jerusalem before him. So that would seem an odd thing to say. In chapter 4, uh, he'll speak about the oppression done. And that would seem to be strange coming from Solomon, given his experience of blessing and prosperity. It doesn't seem to tie up with him. There's, there's other reasons you can look at the commentaries on that. There, there seems to be a majority view that the speaker is not Solomon. But what he's doing at times is exploring reality as Solomon. Um, and the name Kohelet is perhaps a way of alluding to Solomon without claiming to be him. So that's maybe some of what's going on there, who we're listening to. When you try to read this book as you've found... Um, and help others to, you, you tend to ask, to end up having to ask a few more questions, don't you? Because um, you know there'll be people in, in the group who'll pick up on tricky bits in it. And Ecclesiastes, as I said, does give lots of questions. Understanding a bit about the wisdom literature, is, if you refer back to the notes you, you've got earlier this morning, that will help. But there are some irritating features that prompt questions. Uh, when you read through it and as you go through it uh, over the weeks you're going to do it, you, you may find yourself asking, is it contradictory? Does the book contradict itself? So for Kohelet, is pleasure and joy a good thing or not? So we're on page four of the little handout, I think now. Because in chapter two and verse two, he seems to, seems to say it's frowned upon. But when you get to chapter eight, verse 15, it seems to be commended. And you think, well, what is it? And then just on wisdom generally, you, you think in the book, is wisdom thought of as positive or not? Because in chapter 7, verse 12, it seems to be a good thing. 
But then chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, it seems to have very little value. You could read it like that. Why all the contradictions? Another question you, you might have as you go through it, and you may have found this, does it seem to encourage hedonism? Now, there appears to be a repeated uh, refrain that I think you first catch in chapter 2, in verse 24, where he says, there is nothing better for a person, nothing better than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Eat and drink and be happy. Get on with it. And it's there in chapter 3, it's there in chapter 8. It comes up in quite a few places. There's nothing better for people to do. Just eat and drink. Christmas every day. And just get on with that. And there's some questions about these two voices as well that, that people who study this book think. Are we to view Kohelet positively or negatively? Does our frame narrator think the stuff in the middle is good or not? Has he got a wrong view of life under the sun? Or is he telling me things that are actually right? So if you read the commentators, there's Tremper Longman thinks, uh, no, we're to view it negatively. Um, his view of God in the book is, is a God who's distant and uh, far off and it's not right and there's other people uh, Barry Webb uh, one of the commentators on it he says this the frame author presents Kohelet's teaching and he says vanity this vanity is part of human experience and any kind of wisdom any kind of wise living which disregards this is to be refused any kind of wisdom that won't face up to the reality of life as it is is to be refused even if it seems to come with Solomonic credentials. Now he's saying what Kohelet is doing is giving some fine-tuning uh, on how to apply wisdom to the realities of this frustrating life. Um, there seems perhaps to be a temptation to think that if I can get hold of the right kind of wisdom, I can control life. And Kohelet wants to address that. Uh, I'm no expert on this book, but I'm more persuaded that our author has this positive view. That, that's kind of what I think is going on. With it, we're to read this book positively. Uh, his teaching is really good and positive for us. Um, we might be over the page. Style and structure. Uh, let me move through some of this before we, we dig into it. Uh, in a sense, there's three big sections uh, to the book. There's uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where you get an introduction and a motto. Um, then chapter 1, verse 3 to 12, 7 is Kohelet's teaching. And then right at the end of the book, we get the motto repeated uh, and an epilogue. And just before, before we go a bit further, kind of Kohelet's thesis, his motto, his view on life. Uh, meaningless, meaningless, I think it says in the NIV, if you've read that. Um, the ESV will say, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The, the word is hebel in, in Hebrew. Again, the, the NIV translates it meaningless. ESV is vanity. Uh, you can chat to the Hebrew scholars present. Uh, but from my reading, I, I think maybe, for me, meaningless feels a little bit misleading. Uh, there's no meaning at all here. I, I could read it like that. There's absolutely no point... And that would seem especially odd, it's, you read on, when you get to chapter 12, verse 8, after the commendation to rem remember your creator when you're young. 
uh, to be told at the end of that that it's meaningless anyway, even doing that. Uh, Vanity or futility seems perhaps better. There's something vain here. It doesn't quite work out. Or or even the word can be translated a breath or a vapour. So in Psalm 144, the word is translated about people's lives being a breath. There's a sense of something that won't last, that's transient, and almost you can't get your hands on it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or a breath of a breath. The merest of breaths, says Kohelet. The merest of breaths. Everything is a breath. I can't get hold of it. And it goes really quickly. And it's gone and I can't figure it out. Um, Let's get um, stay in our groups, um, but just have a look at the epilogue. I think it's verses 9 to 14, and there's just three questions there. I want you just to read through that, and then very briefly with the people sitting beside you, what do we learn about this, this chap, Kohelet, the preacher or teacher? What do we learn? See if you can discern anything about wisdom from this epilogue and the purpose of the book. Um, so again, just, just very briefly, as quick as you can, read it. Uh, and then jot down a few ideas. Okay. Thoughts then? Sorry, just to keep us moving along. What do we learn about this? This figure, Kohelet? He's wise. He's wise, yes, thank you. He's wise. He's careful. Yeah, yeah, he's he's careful. He, He searches into things carefully. Yeah? He seems to be, yeah, he's experienced. He's wise, yeah, and he's experienced. Great care. He's upright. And true. What would it be, if you went to listen to one of his sermons, what would it be like? Yeah, it's words of truth. Is it, are they just true? It says in mind here, Weighing and studying and arranging Proverbs with great care, the preacher sought to find words of delight. See that about him? He, he not only knows the truth, he wants to communicate it in a way where you say, oh, I get that. I, I, he, he, seems a, he seems a great guy. Um, he arranges, seems to be arranging the Proverbs. He wants to straighten things out so you've got it clear, so you don't confuse the information. Uh, anything about wisdom from this epilogue? What do you learn about wisdom generally? Keep you in place. Yeah, keep you in place. Uh, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed. I think that's the idea. I think it's like for shepherding, you, you get a stick with some jaggy bits in it so you can whack them a little bit, keep them, keep them on track. Wisdom is to do that, is to keep you on track. Yeah. It's a means to an end rather than an end of itself. 
Yes, yes, I, th- I think very much so, as we'll see in the book. It's not, wisdom is not an end in itself. Um, hmm. Anything else? It's different from. Go on. Yeah, okay, yeah. And I think this bit about um, of the making of many books, there is no end. I, I hadn't thought about it till just now. It is a bit like James, isn't it? Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. I think that's what he's saying, isn't it? You can spend all your time studying, you never actually live it out. That's not wisdom. Um, and the purpose of the book, let, let me just... Let me just say that, the, the pre, uh, to present the reality of life within which we live. Here's the end of the matter. This is what life's like. I think that's what he's saying. Um, fear God and keep his commands. Uh, trust God. There may be things that are unexplained, uh, but you're not going to get that explanation here. Uh, you live with what you know uh, and live well. I think it is trying to guard us from the unreality of wisdom. Let, let's move on. I'll just say very briefly, Coelet's teaching style... Anyway, keep those things in mind. That's what the book's wanting to do. Uh, Kohelet's teaching style, we won't go through this just at the top of the page. Let me mention one of them. I think you'll find this, and some of them will be familiar to you. I put one in there called Opposition. I I think as you read through it, you you feel at times like you you keep uh, hitting a brick wall. He seems to be saying that's what life is like. So if you look at chapter 3... Just think, do you know all the time bits? It's one of the famous bits. I think there was a song in the 60s that had this in it, but uh, there's a, was it 60s, 70s, a long time ago, a long time ago, when, just yesterday, it almost was a time to be born and a time to die, yeah, a, a time to kill and a time to heal, everything's got, it doesn't just go in one way, there's something else, there's, a, there's an opposite to it, and then you see it down in verse 11, of chapter 3, if you just can glance at that, he's made everything beautiful in its time, also he's put eternity into man's heart we know there's something bigger going on uh, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, we're just frustrated there's, he puts opposites in, you, you find that throughout the book I, I think I'm going in one direction am I going to get the answer and no it just it just stops me uh, there's, look out for his little oppositions but he he puts in, in the way he writes, and think about why is he writing this way? Um, just how we, we think about the book, how we can structure it. Just have a look, there's a little grid there. Again, this is just very briefly. In each of those boxes, just have a look. How is, how is Kohelet speaking to us in these verses? Uh, again, not looking for details of what he's saying, just how is he speaking to us, and jot some things down that may help us with the structure in a moment. Okay, sorry to keep moving us on. The left-hand column, and I hope you've not just done the left-hand column because you'll miss the other. What what are the kind of ways he speaks in the left-hand column? 
Re reflection. Yeah, there's anecdotes there, but you, you get phrases like, I have seen, then I considered, I have seen, this is what I found. Uh, and the right-hand column? Instructions. Uh, yeah, I think so. Now, like any genre we read in the Bible, we're, we're not to expect it to function like modern Western standards where everything's laid out in a certain systematic way. There'll be, there'll be overlapping things going on. But the edges of sections may blur, but I think he does seem to employ some kind of observation and instruction uh, going on. So in your little... Uh, the handouts at the table, where you see there's an O on the top of the sheet, that's an observation section, I think, and then an instruction section. Over the page, on page six of your handout, here's a possible structure. Again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't die over this, and if someone says there's a different structure, I'd probably happily concede it. But I think the observation instruction thing can be helpful for us, and Helpful with thinking about some of the difficult things. Even this word vanity that's used occurs 38 times. 23 of the times are in the observation sections. And almost always with the stereotypical conclusion that it has. All, all is vanity. Uh, what, what, what it says here, the enjoyment text. The ones that I might think are hedonistic. They mainly come in the observation sections. Which I think is interesting. If, if they are observation sections. Possibly they're to underline human impotence. I, I just can't do anything else. I might as well just eat and drink and be happy. It's not saying this is the life to go for. It's a, it's a reflection, an observation on life. Wisdom, where you find wisdom being viewed um, negatively and then positively, it's interesting. In the observation sections, it seems to be viewed more critically. But in the instruction sections, it's affirmed over folly. So again, just when you're thinking, is this a contradiction? It's, it's worth asking What's he doing in this section? Is he telling me to live like this or is he giving me an observation on life? Um, and it might be an observation on people who overplay wisdom or make wisdom, as John was saying, an end in itself. And I think it can help with joining the dots. So if you just have a look at uh, chapter 7, verse um, 2 to 4, um, I think this is where you might find... Kohelet gets a bad rep and you're not going to invite him to a party. Um, verse 2 of chapter 7, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face is the heart made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Oh, brilliant. Um, thanks very much. You, you sound a great laugh to have around uh, at a party. But if that's an instruction section off the back of the observation before that says, just have a look at chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And he goes on to talk about those who love money, don't think about realities. Uh, death's never in the picture for them. They live for pleasure. And he's saying in contrast to that, think about life seriously. You need to, if you want to find joy, it's not found it's not found in just thinking, I'll just live for pleasure and money. You've got to start hanging out with people who know how to take life seriously. Do, do you see, it's, it's not just about being miserable. It's about a reflection on something else that he's seen and instructing you how to live. It, I, hope that, I hope that's helpful. When you read those bits, don't just say, miserable guy. Why is he telling me this here uh, and now? 
I know time's going on. We're going to dive into Ecclesiastes for a bit um, in, in your groups. The, this first section, 1, 3 to 4, 15, seems to talk about toil a lot. I've given you four little sections there. You guys over here, the, the side of the room, wherever you view yourself with my hands pointing, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, you sort of feel 1, 12 to 2, 26... Uh, 3, 1 to 4, 6, or what was it? Uh, yeah, and 4, 7 to 15 over here. Just, just, you need to read through it quickly. This is not what I want you to do in your small groups. What's, what's his big idea here, and how does it impact human endeavour? So see if there's just things you can pick out from them quickly. Don't get bogged down in details. I'm afraid we've not got time for that. So just read the section. Any kind of... What, what seems to be his theme? And how does it impact human endeavour? Okay, can I gather some of your thoughts? Let me, because um, time is going on and there's a little bit more to do. Can I try and, I'll just give you my sort of summaries and shout out if you think something's very different. So that, that first section, 3 to 11, I, I think what he seems to say is humanity and their environment have the same characteristic. Uh, it feels like endless cycles are repeated with never reaching uh, a final goal. And there's a, in that sense, nothing's ever new. Toil follows an endless repetitive cycles. Do you get any young mums in your groups? Uh, they might relate to that. That's just one very domestic way. Life just feels you're on a tedious treadmill. And it's frustrating. Um, there's all sorts of other ways. That it feels like that... In, in the second section, 12 to 26, which um, maybe we're more aware of, I think it's quite well known, that kind of section. I think he's saying is, toil doesn't bring the satisfaction you're looking for. If you try to make toil the means to ultimate satisfaction, it will disappoint. Interesting interview with Madonna uh, a number of years ago. She says this, I, I was at the top of my world. Uh, I'd won a golden globe for Evita. I was pregnant, I had fame, I had fortune, everything that you would perceive a person would want in life. But I'm sure everyone's had that out-of-body experience where you say to yourself, and it might happen at 28 or 38 or 68, why am I here? Why am I inside this body? What am I doing? And I was hearing that question a lot. As That's what Kohel is telling us. The best of the best have lived this way. And they've come up disappointed. Um, it work only seems to work out well, he says, when it's received as a gift from God. And joy returns when you give up uh, trying to find ultimate satisfaction through work and receive it as a gift. Uh, that next little section, 3, 1, 4 to 6, I, I, I think there's a, a time theme running through this section. Uh, the work and... And the, I think the point is the worker is not in control. God sets the time for everything. The only really free work going on is God. 
And we might suspect there's some, a bigger picture in life, see Madonna, but we can't grasp it fully. No, you're not in control and don't try and control life uh, for yourself through your work or through other things. And then in that last one uh, I gave you, if you want to jot this down, you can read it again, see what you think. But there seems to be a, a building of companionship. It goes from one to two to three to loads. Um, and I think one of the things he says is um, companionship seems to make toil more bearable. Um, but it doesn't solve the problem. Uh, you feel a frustration. And in the end, it can become a burden as well. Um, I think, sorry, that's very quickly through one of the observation sections. We get now a little instruction section at the end. Can you just have a look at this? Chapter 5, verse 1. I'm just going to go through this quickly for you. And you see what he says. And I think this is where it starts to be, again, really helpful. In light of that observation section, chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Here's the instruction. God is a God of revelation. And he speaks to you. And the thing you're to do is make sure you listen well. Chapter 5, verse 4. He carries on. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Uh, listen to God's word. Conform your life quickly to living God's way. I think that's kind of what he's uh, saying there. Again, this is very brief. Verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. There's this breath, this drifting away. But God is the one you must fear. So you ask the question, what is wisdom for Kohelet? It is fearing God. And fearing God looks like listening carefully to his word and conforming your life to what he says. That's what wisdom looks like for him. And you can think about all the details and nuances of how that's applied and the issues where it needs to be applied. Uh, we're just going to move on. Sorry, it's five past. Can we run over just for a, a little while? If you need to look, oh, it's not quite five past, it's two minutes past. I've got three minutes before I'm in trouble. Um, does, does anyone want to, I feel like I'm rushing through that. Does that, I, I think that's quite a helpful observation. Here's what life looks like, feels like. Here's what you do. Here's what I want you to do. Um, and I think just look for those kind of things as, you, as you're going through the book. What's he telling me it looks like and it feels like and I'll be tempted to act like. You, know, you can think of the people in your group so you think, you know, applying the stuff Jim and Sonia were doing, I want to be in control of things. Um, I want to just live for pleasure. Um, I'm frustrated because life seems repetitive in that way. And again, why he's written it in a repetitive way, because he wants us to feel that. Uh, other lessons in Ecclesiastes. These are, I think, some of the other sections he goes through. Section on the love of money and pleasure. I think his point is, you can't take it with you. Uh, for really brainy people, you have really intellectual people in your groups, I think he says you won't figure it all out. Um, and I think there's an interesting thing about men and women that you might have a bit of fun trying to understand. I don't think he's saying there was one good man and I couldn't find any good women. I think he's kind of saying, do you know what, I just about understood one man and, and women are more of a mystery to me. I just, I don't understand... 
if you're looking for me for a comprehensive understanding of why people are the way they are, with all my wisdom, I've come up at a loss. And so the response to that is be cautious with how, you know, saying you know how things work. And, and then on injustice and suffering, life can be hopelessly confusing. And the wicked and the righteous seem to have a confusing mixed experiences of life. And one of the things he says is the wicked will always misinterpret divine patience. They'll think they're getting away with it. And so I'm just going to, in in chapter 8, verse 12, he'll say, I think he's saying the wicked misinterpret divine patience. You can look at these later, but they're just some of the things uh, that go on in the book. Um, Kohelet's theology, um, page 14, have your little handout. What does he think about God? Let me just tell you some things here. You can look up the verses later. He says this about God. God is the creator and he's the judge. If you want to write that down. Chapter 12 and chapter 11. About creation. He'll say creation is good. About toil and work. He'll say it's frustrated. About people, humanity. He'll say they were made upright but became sinful and are returning to dust. And he'll say about wisdom, there's a pursuit of wisdom that goes too far and becomes godless. And I think there is a hint, future hope, there's something to come beyond this life which will vindicate true wise living. Did you get those? Do I need to say them again? So God is the creator and judge. Creation is good. Work is frustrated. Humanity made good but becomes sinful and returning to dust. There's a pursuit of wisdom that goes too far. And yet there is some hope there. Now if I was to ask you, how far do you have to read in the Bible before you get those themes? Which book would we stop at? Which chapter would we stop at? Three. He's just drawing on creation, isn't he? This is the way life is. It begins to sound like Genesis 1 to 3, doesn't it? You're not in control of life. Not even wisdom gives you that control. In fact, when you think about what's the temptation for Eve? When she saw that the apple was good to eat and useful for gaining wisdom. It's wanting a wisdom that becomes separated from God's word. I think that's what he's telling us. Don't live like that. Don't pursue wisdom like that. And as you take it on into the New Testament, if we turn over the page, his theology begins to sound a lot like Paul, doesn't it? For the creation waits with eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The resurrection and creation's release. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And we live by the Spirit. And that is, is that to tell me to stop? It really should be, shouldn't it? You can read that. You just think, though, in some of these things, work. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 
58, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Um, money, Paul tells you, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Uh, in, uh, you start using money in a gospel way, understanding who Jesus is, thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future. Uh, wisdom, there is wisdom in the gospel among the mature that Paul will talk about, and justice the gospel assures us there is a day set when injustice and suffering will be dealt with. Uh, we, we look forward that way. I think, I'm really sorry we're rushing at the end. Um, that's, that's poor of me. Um, he ends his book, um, Corella ends his teaching, remember your creator in the days of your youth. I think he does say, enjoy life. And especially when you're young, when, when life is good, enjoy it, but remember to be serious about life. Receive life with joy, but be serious about God. Remember your creator as you're faced with the reality of your decreation. I think that's what he's saying. So not like Steve Jobs, stay hungry, stay foolish. Death's a good thing. Stay wise. Live joyfully, but seriously. Remember your creator as you face the reality of judgment. And I think the New Testament would take us on and say, remember also that your creator has become your redeemer. Uh, I've been trying to think how this fits in you know, to the Bible as a whole. You think back to Adam and Eve hoping to gain wisdom, but they reject God's word. You think about Solomon, the son of David, who asked for wisdom, but in the end throws it away as he rejects God's word. Because there's no true wisdom without God's word. And then Jesus, how is he described often in the Gospels? The son of David. The son of David. The real son of David who has real wisdom. Wisdom that can not only deal with the realities of a frustrated world and not just help you bear up under it, but can transform creation and you with it through his gospel. I think this is the trajectory it goes in. And I think that's um, where we want to take the book. Let me just... Um, yeah, let me just pray for us at the end. Our Creator has become a Redeemer from this frustrated life. Lord, this is a, an enigmatic book, but it's a book that does lead us to the Lord Jesus. Uh, it, it keeps us looking uh, for what is the hope that will solve all these problems and trusting you, and you've given us the answer. Wisdom has been revealed in Jesus. Uh, hope and rescue from frustration and from death has been revealed, and we thank you for it. And please would you... Help us by your spirit to do maybe the hard work of selling this book, but not in a way just to convince people it's true, but so it'll lead them to Jesus and they'll find the hope there. Please, would you help your church with that? Amen. Thanks for listening. Thanks, uh, thanks very much, Dave. It's, um, it's a real treat uh, to have... Uh, Dave, with us today um, to have invested all the time you have in preparing uh, for us uh, and serving us in that way. Thank you very, very much. And thank Julia as well for uh, giving you to us uh, for today. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you as well for everyone who's come today. Thank you for investing in today. What is a, no doubt a precious day for you, a day uh, of rest for a lot of you, uh, to have given up so much of it. Uh, I really do hope it, it bears fruit uh, in the term ahead in your groups. I hope you have a really uh, good term in uh, what may seem a hard sell, but I think is just a spectacular book. So I hope you 
enjoy uh, diving into it uh, together. And thanks for those who, who have also prepared and spoken for us uh, today, for Ben and Jim and Sonia Rich has uh, gone down to Cambridge to another uh, meeting, uh, but uh, thank you to him as well. And thank you for those who've uh, beavered away uh, organising things, food and, uh, and cleaning it up and everything like that to make today run so smoothly. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, one final thing to say, and that is uh, hopefully you got this emailed to you, but the first lot of notes for small group leaders was emailed, I think, late this week. If you want a hard copy, there are some copies there. I'll put them on the table just over there if you want to grab one on your way out, uh, go for it. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for time together. Thank you for the encouragement of uh, Christian brothers and sisters and hearing you speak to us. We thank you for uh, you, our great teacher. Uh, we pray that we would be wise before you. Uh, we pray that we would listen well and uh, conform our lives to your word. Uh, we pray this for ourselves and those we lead. Amen. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.